Hey, it's Brandon. Welcome to Transform Your Workplace. This episode is brought to you by Zenium HR. If you have a contributor level employee that you just moved to a new manager, send them to Zenium. We've got leadership coaching, workshops, and e-learning courses, all of them geared towards new managers. Check us out at zeniumhr.com. Okay, I'm really excited for this episode. I've been waiting probably for a year or more. I've been, or at least I've been wanting to interview Lori Rudiman. She is an entrepreneur, renowned speaker. She's an HR expert and author of the brand new book, Betting on You, How to Put Yourself First and Finally Take Control of Your Career. And of course, she's also the host of the podcast, Punk Rock HR. I assume a lot of you listeners out there are uh, also subscribed to Lori's podcast. So hopefully you already know her and will love this this discussion between the two of us. So in this podcast, we're diving into her book. She's got so many great stories from her career. So we dive into a lot of interesting and sometimes just for me, crazy sounding stories. And I just love her insight and outlook on everything related to HR and career development and all that. So you're going to love this discussion. And uh, let me know what you thought about the discussion with Lori. I'd love to hear it. Take care. Talk to you next week. Hey, Lori, it is an absolute pleasure to have you on the podcast. Thanks for coming on. Oh, my goodness. It's my pleasure. It's been a long time coming. I feel like we've talked about it. and Yeah, well, it's interesting because you know I've been following you for a while and I've been wanting to interview you because I've had this podcast going since 2012. I was pretty early into the game on this. And I wanted to interview you, but I knew you had a book coming out. So I'm like, I'll just hold off and that way I can get your whole backstory and I'm so glad I waited. But we've connected so much in the past, just in like direct messages and stuff like that. And I actually wanted to just start by telling a, a quick story. So it's a sad one. But so my wife's best friend, uh, she went to esthetician school with her years ago, but they've you know been close ever since. And she was diagnosed with breast cancer back in like probably when the pandemic started. And they're just escalated so quick and all of a sudden one day you know we don't hear from her for a while and all of a sudden I actually get a message from you I don't know if I ever told you that but I got a message from you you're the first one that messaged me and it was like a tribute to her um, she had passed and it just happened so fast and what was interesting about that is and we can talk more about this but just social media can be so disgusting sometimes and so polarizing and we saw that with the election stuff and politics and I try to stay away from that stuff but my gosh like you and I connected and you you sent me the nicest message and it can bring people together in in beautiful ways and so i guess i bring that up because i didn't even know this at the time that you were following her and so how'd that come about well just like you someone in my life got cancer at the beginning of the pandemic. It was my brother. He was diagnosed with stage 3B colon cancer. And it's weird because my brother is younger. He's a runner. He's a marathoner, a triathlete. And it was just so unexpected. And one day on your social media feed, you had posted that you were doing a 
dance party to celebrate your friend, Christina. And I thought, oh my God, this is such a good idea. I want to do this for my brother, right? So already I'm inspired. And then I went down the rabbit hole. I'm like, who is this Christina woman? (laughs) And it turns out, boy, she's fantastic and vibrant and loving and inspirational without cancer, let alone with cancer. She was just so terrific. And so I connected with her and said, you know, my brother also has cancer and you've really cheered me up and thank you for doing that. And I love your posts and I hope you don't think I'm weird. So we formed this back and forth connection where I checked in with her. I mean, it wasn't like anything super intimate or deep, but then one day when I saw the terrible news that she had passed just out of the blue, I sobbed my guts out for a woman I had never met in real life. Isn't that bizarre? Yeah. And I, I, I should have told you before we got on the podcast that you were actually the first person that messaged me because I was, you know, you're three hours ahead of me and it, or I think her husband must have posted it earlier, but I saw it when I was laying in bed and because you messaged me and then I showed my wife, I'm like, you got to see this. And she, yeah, she was hurt. Oh, I'm sorry. I don't mean to be part of your story that way. No, no, it's, it's absolutely fine. And, but that's just the kind of the beauty of this world too, like where it could bring people together and inspire us in different ways. So I wanted this podcast to be about you, but. Well, and, and some people would say, why are you stalking Brandon's life and Brandon's friend? And it's appropriate to watch, but maybe you shouldn't have connected with Christina. Like I could see that. I'm really grateful for the opportunity just to know her in a limited capacity And she recommended a book, Radical Remission, that I passed along to my brother, which he's now following. And I'm like, just so grateful for it. So yeah, Yeah, thank you. Yeah. Well, this podcast is about you. You've got, you've had a heck of a couple of weeks. I'm sure you're on the podcast tour. You just released your book, betting on you how to put yourself first and finally take control of your career. And I mean, this book is just real. It's authentic. It's funny. It's, um... I mean, what's the response been like so far? I know you you were joking, I think it was on Twitter or Instagram the other day, like you, you posted somebody who had like given you like a two-star review. And I'm like, that is so off base. Like, <laughs> Well, I mean, I'm not for everybody. I'm okay with that. You know, that that is fine by me. It was just funny because the dude heard about the book in the New York Post. And in mm. the review actually said there are things about it that I like, but right. I don't like the leftist political <laughs> drivel. I'm like, dude, nailed it. <laughs> That's, That's me. So awesome. That is me. So, uh, yeah, so I don't mind. I think those two stars were hard earned and I'll take them. And I'm quite appreciative of that. But yeah, the last couple of weeks have been crazy. I've been doing this uh, writing, speaking in the world of creating content since 2007. And before that, I was anonymously blogging. And I thought, I had had just about every experience that someone can online. And this month has proven that, no, it can be different and you can connect with people differently. And even in COVID, you can get a book out and sell it and sell it well. And I'm just, I'm grateful. Yeah. You started your career in HR. How did you get there? Because that was not your degree. That was not that was not your path. You didn't have it all planned out, but you got an HR somehow. And what we'll, I want to get into the the Pfizer days and all that, but like what led you to HR? You fall into it? Yeah, I did fall into it. Fell into it hard, face first. Well, I had a pile <laughs> of student debt from my really useful degree in English and creative writing, and I had studied abroad. The, those good old liberal arts degrees; those are really helpful. 
Yeah, yeah, useless completely. Well, I mean, not really, because I went to my university and said, I need a job. And there was this unfilled internship that paid like eight bucks an hour in HR. And I didn't know what that was all about. But they're like, yeah, just go do it. It's some money and you'll see how corporations work. And then you can figure out, are you a good fit for sales or marketing or PR, which is where people with, you know, undergraduate liberal arts degrees tend to find themselves. And I went to go work at this candy company that operated 24 hours a day, seven days a week on the north side of St. Louis. And it pulled from communities like Ferguson, which has since been in the news, or it pulled from immigrant communities. And there were a lot of like Bosnians and Serbians working there who would, by the way, bring all of their beef from Yugoslavia, all their anguish, all their anxieties and fight with one another on the candy factory floor. I mean, it was really amazing. Wow. I remember saying to my mom, like, I don't know what I'm doing here. And she said, you're paying off your student loans. That's what you're doing. And she was right. You know, from there, I went to go work at a company that some people have heard of and hate called Monsanto. And I did some recruiting there and I worked at some other companies. And all along the way, I was really driven to just pay down this debt that I had accumulated, which in 1997, when I graduated, was around 50 grand, which in today's terms is double. So I had about $100,000 from an undergraduate degree in English. I mean, stupid. But I've paid it off through hard work in the trenches of human resources. And then it just got to the point where I was like, what am I doing? This is not my passion. It's not my purpose. It's not even healthy for me to show up anymore because I'm so dissociated from the job I need to figure out another way. Well, and I think when you work for Monsanto and Pfizer, I mean, those are giant companies. So no wonder you're pretty cynical and jaded over it. I mean, the, the way you're describing Pfizer, I mean, you sound like George Clooney from up in the air. Like you're you're flying all over the place, firing people. No wonder you're not having a great time there. I don't know. Some people would say, what a job. I traveled all over the world. I went to Rome. I went to, you know, France. I went to England. I was in Belgium, Germany, and all over the United States in glorious places like Terre Haute, Indiana, and Lincoln, Nebraska. But I went to great places too, out to La Jolla, California. And I was in New York all the time, eating really great food. I had a corporate American Express card, drinking whatever I wanted to, real autonomy, because I had like teams that I was caretaking for. So they were responsible to me and I was responsible to them, but no real official direct reports. I mean, it was glorious for a slacker, except for the part where I kept breaking people's hearts. Yeah, that's got to be tough. I mean, and you described it later on as felt like Groundhog's Day. You felt like Bill Murray and Groundhog's Day where every day Mm -hmm. is kind of the same. You break it, people starts. It's like, okay, on to the next thing. That's right. That's right. Did it just take a toll on you after a while? It did. You know, I was in an airport and um, I'm five feet tall and, you know, I'm a tiny woman and people kept mistaking me for being pregnant because I put on weight so quickly. Yeah, That's pretty bold for them to come out and say that. Yeah, they would just truly assume like, oh, when do you do? (laughs) When's your expectant date? I mean, people were and still are like that. And, you know, it was hard because I did try to get pregnant. I was trying to get pregnant, but I was not taking care of myself. I was on the road, eating poorly, not exercising, drinking too much. The total road warrior life. And so when I would hear that, it would absolutely break my heart because it was like, dude, if you only knew, if you only knew this is weight gain and not baby weight, it really started to wear on my ego. So one night at the airport, I was 
drinking Pepsi and eating Starburst like any good road warrior between flights, you know, and I grabbed an Us Weekly because God forbid I focus on my continuous learning and stumbled on an article about celebrities getting weight loss surgery in Mexico. And I thought, oh my God, what is this all about? But these are the days before the internet, really. I mean, I had a Blackberry, but I couldn't get on usweekly.com. So I had to go to my hotel, plug in my laptop through a VPN and the mobile connection and go down a rabbit hole that way of weight loss surgery and all of that. And it really made me understand that when companies want something bad enough, they do it. They put money behind it. They will change the course of their trajectory by investing. And I thought, oh my God, I need to do this for myself. I need to invest in my well-being. So, you know, I channeled my inner celebrity and I went to Mexico, even though I didn't qualify for it, and got myself weight loss surgery. And I tell that story in the first chapter of my book. You slipped the nurse a couple extra hundred bucks, didn't you? That's how you were able to qualify. I slipped a lot of people money. Yeah, yeah. And that's like the lesson. It's so interesting to me because money buys access to anything in this world. Companies know that. I learned that firsthand and I continue to learn that even with my book and my business. You know, I had money and was able to hire a book coach. And because I'm in a privileged position, I got a great advance and I have money now to pay an agent to be my advocate. I mean, when people say money doesn't bring you happiness, eh, philosophically, that may be true, but it brings you stability, comfort, access, it really reduces anxiety and worry. And when I hear executives say, you only need to pay people $75,000 a year to make them happy. First of all, that statistic is 10 years old at the very least. And second of all, these executives are not working for 75 grand a year. So let's discuss. So this current of money and having an honest conversation about it runs through my entire book from my own individual finances to going to Mexico to the finance finances that I was brought up in with my dad, it's, it's there. And I speak about it honestly. Yeah. And how were you with money? Because I think like you're, you give people advice in this book about like, get your money situation fixed before you jump to something else, because it's to take a leap of faith doing something else. You need to have some reserves. And a lot of people just don't. No, they just jump ship and hang a shingle and expect the business to come to them. Well, I'm both very conservative and very frivolous. I'm a tale of two cities when it comes to money, but I'm self-aware. And so before I left Pfizer, I made sure that I had enough money to go out and start my own business. And I may have not always run my business very well. You know, there are all of these undiscovered costs of incorporating that nobody tells you about, like... I got to pay to fax somebody something. Why do you need a fax? It's, you know, 2020, but some universities and some institutions still want faxes. Okay. But, you know, these little things that happen in your business, you've got to be prepared for it. And um, I just don't think people understand that budgeting is such a trite thing to tell somebody to do. And yet it's the critical foundation for everything. Budgeting your money, budgeting your time, budgeting your consumption of food, budgeting your energy so you can do cool things. That's where it's at, man. That's the only way to get anything done in this world. You were early to the blogging and social media space. This is actually during the Pfizer days where you started blogging anonymously. I don't know if your colleagues knew about it, but you were basically answering questions about 
career advice and HR and just probably telling some horror stories. What was that experience like? You built a following and at some point it was anonymous maybe, and but you then built this personal brand. How did that all come about? So weird because back then there was very little competition yeah. on the internet. And so the circumstances were different than somebody who would want to do this today. But I had an ex-boyfriend from a real long time ago send me an email when I probably had an AOL account. And he said, you know, I'm doing this thing called blogging on Blogspot. You should check it out. Go, go read my blog. The first time anybody ever said that to me, and it was still obnoxious then as it is today. But go read my blog. Okay, dude. And I read his blog and I thought, oh my God, I could do this. I could write about my day. I could write about what I'm experiencing at work. I bet people would find that more interesting than this dude. And so I did. I started writing about work, life, cats, all the stuff I write about today. And I probably should have been fired from Pfizer because while I obscured identities, I was pretty honest about how miserable I was, the um, mediocrity of my HR department, the mediocrity I brought to the game. I was not lighting the world on fire. So yeah, I did that. And at one point, you know, I, I wanted to leave and I was going to ask for severance. I was going to exit out of Pfizer. And a friend of mine said, you need to out yourself, but you need a catchy name. I'm like, well, you know, years ago, this lady was making fun of me at work. And she said, who do you think you are? Punk rock HR. And my friend, who is Chris Dunn, said to me, if you don't buy punkrockhr.com right now, I'm going to buy it and you're going to buy it from me for thousands of dollars. You're going to regret this. So that's what started me outing myself into the world of blogging and speaking and writing. And again, there wasn't that much competition. So somebody emerging who was young, blonde, bubbly, and given the finger to corporate America, I could write my ticket. One of my favorite chapters of yours is on bet on yourself. And one quote in particular jumped out at me and it's, the quote says, whether you have a specialized or generalist skill set, you won't know if a career suits you until you try it, end quote. And I'm like, isn't that like the absolute truth? I'm like, we don't take risks because we're scared, we're comfortable, or we feel like we're just so specialized in a certain skill set that we can't try something else and we need to stay in our lane. What's your advice to people in just taking a leap to something new. And you even brought up uh, David Epstein's book, Range. I actually read that probably five or six months ago, and it was so enlightening because I have kids, you know, they're, they're growing, they're eight and seven years old. And it's like, you don't want to specialize them too early because you don't expose them to all these new adventures and, and whatnot. It becomes harder to take risks later on. So what's yeah, yeah. just your overall thoughts on that? Well, I can't get much better than David Epstein. I mean, that book is really great. And there are a lot of lessons for us today. You know, you don't have to take a full-throated risk and throw your day job to the side. You know, years ago, I worked with a man who was an accountant. And he went and got his, you know, MBA and pursued this really important career in finance. But he was miserable. And I asked him, why are you doing this? And he said, well, my dad wouldn't pay for college if I went to art school. So he got on this finance track and pursued it and just kind of got stuck. But you know what he started doing? Taking art classes at the Art Institute of Chicago. And he found himself really uh, full of a love of sculpture. And he started doing sculpture when he was like 38 years old. And his work is stunning. It's beautiful. 
But you know what? He also has health insurance and a 401k and all of the good things in this world because he's got some perspective. He invested in his underdeveloped personal life and suddenly work wasn't this thing that totally defined him. He had something else. So I think about him. His name is David. I think about David all the time when we talk about generalists versus specialists because it doesn't have to be either or. He is absolutely an expert in the world of finance, but he's got other things in his life that just bring beauty and joy and define him in interesting ways. And he can take that good stuff to the office and teach others and lead others. You know, he'll go into a class and take a sculpture class with other artists and learn about intricate ways of team building and leading and communicating and calming things down and all of that applies at work. In fact, it makes work better. So that's who I was thinking about when I wrote that that chapter. You brought up this interesting point about the career identity statement and how it can be, it could be really powerful, but it's also limiting to ourselves and what what we are holistically. And then you're basically saying like, actually the human statement makes more sense. Maybe delineate between the two and you do such a good job in paraphrasing yours that maybe you should share that with the listeners. Oh my God, I have forgotten it already. (laughs) Well, here's the deal. When I tell people that they need to drop the career identity statement, they're like, what is that? I'm like, dude, it's your elevator pitch and it's not very good. It's not very good at all. You're like, at a networking meeting when we used to go to those, hey, my name is Lori Rudiman. I work in human resources at Pfizer and I've got a couple direct reports and blah, blah, blah. And I'm married and and people are already falling off and snoozing. And even if you refine it, it still is generally boring and one dimensional. So if you can come to a conversation and say, you know, I'm Lori Rudiman. I used to have this job in human resources, but now I'm a volunteer. I'm a writer. I'm a speaker. And define yourself in more human universal terms. When I'm not at work, I enjoy volunteering and rescuing cats and dogs. People are like, oh, yeah, man, I've got a rescue dog. And suddenly you're making this human to human connection that's going to take you way further than this dumb, boring elevator pitch. So start with the human first. That is my mission in this world to get people to stop introducing themselves by job titles. Yeah. That's the lesson I've really taken away from your entire book. The career doesn't have to like identify us. We don't have to have our whole self-worth wrapped up into our careers, but rather having this, this other piece of us that makes us happy. It's silly, but I mean, I know you as the cat lady, just as well as I know you, you want to go fix work, you know, like that's your brand that you've developed, but that's also who you are. I think I am. I am. Well, you know, I do foster dogs now, so I like have added to my repertoire, but yeah, yeah. But I'm, I'm certainly known as someone who loves cats and loves animals and is an advocate for, you know, those less fortunate than us. And that's been really important to me because nobody really cares about HR. And in fact, doors tend to shut when I talk about my job. But when I say, you know, I volunteer with Safe Haven for Cats and, you know, Pause Animal Rescue and blah, 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 people are like, oh, yeah, I get it, you know, and they can make a connection. I think there's something really weird about the past couple of decades where more and more, probably because we're being brainwashed by people in power, we are being told that our work is our worth. And I think our worth is in what we contribute 
to society, our relationships, if we make people happy, if we surprise and delight individuals, if we solve problems and make the world a better place, that's our worth. And our job could certainly be part of that. You know, we need customer service reps. We need marketing specialists. We need vet technicians, but we need them to be so much more. They need to be good people. And I think that's what's been missing, gosh, maybe since the 80s. I don't know. Well, you brought up, I think it was in that same chapter about betting on yourself, like the imposter syndrome idea. And I resonate with that a lot because I find myself, especially on weekends or in downtime away from work that I'm like, I need to be doing something. I need to be reading or learning or working (laughs) and I cannot sit still. And so I do. I mean, this book was probably written for people like me too, where it's not like my whole identity is wrapped up into work. But I definitely can't sit still when I'm not working. Like, I feel like I always have got to be producing. And this idea that you just brought up about maybe we're brainwashed by people in power. I don't know. There's something there. Yeah, yeah. Well, um, a few things. Someone once told me, and this is very common, that uh, comparison is the thief of joy. So when we're comparing ourselves to one another, I mean, it's true. When I look at colleagues who have published books... There's a lot of room for me to think about what I've done wrong, but I don't do that. It's not like I'm in denial. I just do the best I can. I leave it all out on the field, and then I try to focus my attention on something else. I think there's this other thing where we get wrapped up in these stories of, I'm not good, I'm dumb, I'm not worth it. And instead of really indulging in that, I like to test that. I like to say, yeah, am I dumb? Am I as stupid as I think I am? And I use this technique called the pre-mortem to do it. Like, what if I tried to write a book? Would it really be as horrible as I think it would be? Okay, let's test it out. And you know, I'm, I'm going to fail. I'm not going to market it right. And I set a timer for about 60 seconds and I come up with all these things that I could possibly do wrong, all the different ways that I can fail. And I only give myself 60 seconds because I'm a masochist. I can go on for an hour, right? I create this container. And when the timer goes up, I look at this list and I'm like, is it true? And if it's true, how do I fix it? That's the action piece that's so important. You know, a lot of times we take a risk and it bombs and then we look backwards and we're like, God, I am a fool. I'm a moron. That's not really productive. You can't do anything. So if you can flash forward and try to predict failure before it happens, you're more than likely to at least address components of it. And then you open up space for other ways to fail that are more interesting, which is kind of fun and kind of like delightful in life. Like, come on, blind spots. I want to see. I'm sick of failing in the same ways over and over again. So yeah, I love the pre-mortem and it's just such a fun tool to use when you're feeling like you're a loser. Yeah, I'm going to use that individually for sure. But did you use that when you started your tech company with a couple other people? Well, I mean, here's the bind. Oh my goodness. I like to think that I used it, but we did start a tech company where we tried to systematize the pre-mortem. And it turns out nobody likes to talk about failure, even people who think this is a good idea. Scary. It's very scary. It is. Yeah. We need leaders. We need guides. We need Sherpas. And so what we realized pretty quickly is that this was not tech because you could take this information and 
you know, the ways you're going to fail and bake it into Trello, Asana, Basecamp. You could do that on your own. You actually need somebody brave in the room to lead you through this exercise. And if you're the only person in the room, you know, late at night, you're writing in your diary, you need to be brave yourself. And I think talking about this, teaching the pre-mortem is actually a much better way to go than trying to turn it into an app, which was so trendy in 2016 and 2017, right? It's like, got a good idea. How do we make this into an app? And the answer is you don't. Yeah, I guess if you would have done the pre-mortem, you would have avoided that whole situation. But a good learning lesson, right? You learned, I mean, you got to take a, a risk every once in a while. You know, you deplete your savings a couple times in your life and you learn to do the pre-mortem, you know? <laughs> you said that curiosity is the motivational force for high performers. Um, and you had the story about Beth that illustrates this point pretty well. And and maybe Beth's uh, a fake name, but maybe tell that story. So let me tell you about Beth. I know her story well, because she's my cousin. But even if she weren't my cousin, she would be like a million people that I've worked with in my life. Beth got excited about a job because she didn't have anything else going on in her life, right? And she had gone from job to job and burned out. And so she was super stoked about this upcoming opportunity and bought a whole bunch of new clothes. I was excited, scoped out the Starbucks next to the office, right? And showed up on her first day. And I will share with you, it's in healthcare. And she encountered a lot of cranky people who were like, kid, get back in line. Stop asking questions. Know your place. Pay your dues. All the stuff. And she got bored working there pretty quickly because anytime she was curious about processes, procedures, you know, just the quirky things that happen in healthcare, they were like, mind your own business, stay in your lane. Jeez. Yeah. And I think this happens to so many people at work. We just get, you know, founder syndrome. We think we discovered the thing that we're doing, right? And we want to hold on to it and not share the good stuff. And so nobody was sharing anything with Beth. And you know, the days turned into weeks and the weeks months and she stopped wearing those nice new clothes and she adopted scrubs like everybody else, even though she's not really technically a healthcare professional. And those scrubs were, by the way, they were terrible. They were too long on her. She made me cut this from the book and they were always dragging the ground. I'm like, hem your damn pants, drive me crazy. You're never going to get promoted with those pants dragging the ground. But anyway, she really was mad when I had that in the first draft. So Beth one day was bored and said, I'm going to going to go to Target for lunch and get some dog shampoo and some other stuff. And she's at the checkout and a bunch of protesters storm the Target because they're mad that Target supports transgender rights. And Beth was like, oh, no, you didn't. The, the whole bathroom situation, right? The bathroom thing. Yeah. You remember this from a couple of years ago? And it could be the bathroom. Yeah. It could be benefits. I mean, people just protest at businesses because they're wrong. You know, they're just wrong. And so she was mad and she jumped right in the fray and shouted these people wow. down. It got caught on a viral video, was on YouTube, and she was really afraid that she was going to get fired. And that's a legitimate concern. Although protesting can be protected, they can fire you because they don't like the look of you. So we watched the video and I didn't think she was going to get fired, but I'm like, please, let me help you find something. So we did a job search for a new job. And she found an opportunity to go work at a vet tech where they would pay for her to get her license if she stayed for a couple of years. And she went and did that. Now she castrates animals and she does volunteer work on farms and just recently was telling me about castrating pigs. I mean, really crazy, but she's in her zone. And is work perfect? No, she's still cranky. Her pants are still too long. And there's all sorts of issues there. But she's got friends. 
She's happy. She's with her people. And she has a life outside of work. So I'm real happy for her and real proud. And I think there are a lot of lessons in Beth's story for the average reader. Mm -hmm. What's the 30-day journey that you suggest in the book? And this is probably for people who are in that rut, but I I like the way you put this in the book. Well, this book was written without bullet points, without two-by-two quadrants, and without very many exercises. But I couldn't write a book about work without having an exercise where we try to figure out how you want to fix work for yourself in 30 days and then work backwards. And it's basically a simple question. What do you need so that you can? It's a philosophical question that's been around forever, but what do you need from this world so that you can do whatever? And I share an example of someone who's just really burned out at work and she wants to take a vacation. She wants to get some sleep. She wants to enjoy her life. And it turns out what she needs is some help. She needs to call the EAP. She needs professional expertise so that she can feel good about herself, feel good about her choices, and ultimately find a way to take a break from work. So what do you need so that you can? There's a chapter that you have on own, be your own HR department, and you start the chapter (laughs) with an incredible story about an administrative assistant uh, to Frank. I don't think you ever disclosed her, her name in the book, but it was one of your most horrific moments, I think, as an HR professional, right? Like yeah. uh, maybe tell that story in a PG-13 way if you can sure. and why that's a good lesson for us to be our own HR department. Yeah, I was working in human resources and looked out my window and saw an administrative assistant uh, getting it on with her boss. Or maybe the boss was getting it on. Through the window? Like, okay, so you're not the only one that saw this. No, no. The whole third floor saw it because we were shaped in a courtyard. And for whatever reasons, the windows weren't tinted that day because it was cloudy and they didn't have their blinds closed all the way. And so I saw it. But all these other adults saw it, people who were older than me, who knew better, who could do something. I mean, I'm new in my career, wasn't exactly sure what to do. People were gawking. It was really terrible. So I looked at my boss and I went, screw it. I'm going to go. And I ran around the building and I was like Usain Bolt that day. (laughs) I just wanted to make sure that it stayed PG-13 and not X-rated and uh, knocked on the door and let them know that they were being seen. And the administrative assistant came up to me later on and thanked me for having her back. And I'm like, well, slow your roll. You know, (laughs) like that's not how this goes. We talked a little bit about the risk of hooking up with your boss, and she really thought her boss would have her back. She really, and and me as well. She just assumed we're all friends here. It's going to be just fine. And by the way, my boss loves me. Well, he may have loved her, but she lost her job several months later, and Mm -hmm. he was fine. And the weird thing is, she said to me, you know, I trust you, Lori, because, you know, it's not like you're, you know, HR. And I'm like, yeah, yeah, I am HR. She's like, oh, you're a recruiter and you're cool. Yeah, yeah, I'm still HR lady, even if I'm a recruiter. So the moral of that story is don't hook up with your boss or more importantly, don't hook up with your direct reports. Like that's inappropriate. But also know that work is just a transaction. You're there as long as you can solve a problem. But if you become the problem, you're always gone. Right. And I think that's, I mean, the lesson really there is take ownership for your career and, and your life. And 
I mean, that's the macro lesson, right? <laughs> right. Well, it's funny because like I, you know, I read that chapter and I'm like, oh, Lori's pretty cynical about this stuff. Like she doesn't want to have relationships with people and doesn't trust people. But I'm like, I, I question myself a lot of times throughout your book. I'm like, but is she wrong? Yeah, yeah, I'm wrong. I don't think you are in a lot of cases, though. There's just so much truth to it. You know, I do say don't hook up with people at work. And I did meet my husband at work. And I've been married for 18 years. And there's, I mean, there's tension in that. And actually, companies used to celebrate relationships at work. When I worked at Monsanto, we celebrated people who met, married, were married for 25 years. We saw that as a marker of success. And I think we just trusted people differently. And also there wasn't social media for all the added individual drama that can go wrong. And then when people misbehaved, either we fired the woman (laughs) or I don't know, but it wasn't a thing. I'm not exactly sure why, but these days we have all sorts of, you know, rules and regulations around it. And I think what we're missing is the fact that we're not talking about power. We want to put rules on individual contributors, but we're not talking about power at the upper echelons. And that's where I think we're making a mistake. Since you said we should be more like HR departments, take ownership for our lives, all that, HR is evolving. It's evolved dramatically in the last five, 10 years. So how do we as individuals adapt just like HR has to adapt? You think HR is evolving? Like you really think that? Well, I think there's a certain group that's probably not evolving. I mean, they're focused on compliance and the same old best practices, like the worst term I I think I could ever hear it as far as HR. But I think there's a lot of people that are trying to make change. And maybe it's a small group. Maybe it's just the ones that I'm trying to connect. Or maybe I'm just delusional about it all. You know, I think you're right. In any group, there are people who are outliers and doing amazing work. And there are outliers who are terrible. And then there's the murky middle and the murky middle tends to dominate human resources. So when I tell people to be like HR, I think you're right. I'm telling them to be like the best, the most aspirational aspects of HR, that dream of what HR could do, which is enable performance and support people and really disintermediate broken systems and broken processes, right? You know, do, do the good work that we need to be done. But I mean, I'm not sure that's happening very often. My dear friend, Lars Schmidt is on a mission to really highlight that work. And even he's like, I'm doing God's work here because it's not all that common. Mm -hmm. So, but I do feel that people could be their own HR departments and force regular HR professionals out of the conflict zone, out of the daily micromanagement of live zone, out of the drama zone. If we can manage our own lives, we don't need HR to come in and tell us how to talk to someone who sits next to us and is smelly. Like, we don't need that. We don't need HR to help, you know, get involved in conflict between someone who gave us sass, right? We don't, we don't need that. We do that ourselves. And then HR can do things like counsel us, you know, on how to be the best in our careers and institute really great pieces of technology that actually work. Yeah, I'm not telling people to take on another job. What I'm telling them is to just really own their careers. And it turns out if you do that, you don't even need HR. You never even have to walk in a door of an HR office. Exactly. Yeah. It is funny. Like you, you brought up Lars Schmidt. I had a conversation with him last week. It was the first time I had talked with him. And I'm like, and I read his book, Redefining HR. And I'm like, these are the kind of people that are that I'm talking to that are 
changing my perspective on traditional HR. And and maybe that's why my perspective is a little different is I'm not an HR person myself, but I talk with a lot of people who are changing the game, like Lars Schmidt, Michael Bungay-Stanier, and Amy Edmondson, you know, like all these great theories that business owners only put them into practice. Maybe you would change work for the better. You know, you take really good ideas and you lop them on a broken system and you wonder why the ideas don't gain traction. I have talked about blowing up the system and not rebuilding it, but really rethinking it, you know, taking the pieces and maybe letting some of them go into the landfill. Yeah. And a lot of people say, well, what am I going to do? If you blow up HR and you don't reassemble it and you start to democratize it and teach people how to do some of this work, what's left for me? It's like, what's left for you? Go be a sculptor. <laughs> you know, go back and open a froyo store. Go be that yoga teacher that you wanted to be. Or go take your really brilliant ideas around HR and finally do them. You know, in, and on that note, so the if people are miserable in their job, they know it, but there's something that's holding them back from leaving. You had your moment where you had the lap band surgery in Tijuana, and that was just kind of your turning point. I don't know if it was that moment necessarily that just like made you happier and you were willing to take risks at that point, but there's, there's something holding people back. What do you encourage them to do in order to decide if they want to leave or do something in their personal life that would give them this positive jolt? Well, you know, I didn't leave Pfizer right away after I discovered that I wanted more. I started dreaming about the things that I wanted to do and I was writing them down and keeping a list. And then I tried to figure out, all right, if I'm going to keep this job for a little while longer and save some money, what is it that I can do to make myself happy? So I wrote down all of these random things I wanted to tackle in my life, like cleaning out my closet, cleaning out my garage, volunteering with animals, going to the YMCA more often and taking a swim class. And I put them in a bag and I pulled an item out. And if I wanted to do it still, like volunteer with animals, I would go do that until I got bored with it. And that was the kind of stuff where I was really building resilience. I was testing my courage. I was trying new things and demonstrating curiosity. I was becoming a self-leader, really directing my days and my evenings in a different way. So I was developing a skill set in the small moments and practicing it so I can nail it there. And so that's what I would encourage people to do. If there are these things that you have not been able to do in your life because you're so busy with work, dial work back just a couple hours a week and tackle those things and see if it changes the equation. You know, if you're doing more of what you love and still getting your work done, nobody's going to miss you for those two extra hours that you're out of the office. Just try it. Dare them to fire you for having some work-life balance. They're not going to do it. It's hard to fire anybody in this country. Trust me. I know this firsthand. So go out, invest in yourself just a little bit, practice putting yourself first and see if you can carry it over to bigger moments. Well said, Lori. Um, I just really appreciate you. This book is hilarious. It's packed with good advice. You've got just some great, the great stories are just, it's it's well worth the read. So I encourage people to go get it. Where could people find you and everything that you're up to? I mean, you're really everywhere. If people don't know who you are, then that'd be a miss on their part. But. I am too many places, to be honest with you. I'm going to go to the beach this weekend. That's where I am this weekend. Good. Yeah. Hi, yeah. everybody. I need, I need some time away from human beings. Um, I'm at punkrockhr.com. You go there, you can fall into my ecosystem, listen to my podcast, find a copy of the book, see pictures of my foster dogs and cats, all the good stuff, punkrockhr.com. Lori Rudiman, it has been an absolute pleasure. Thanks for coming on. 
My pleasure. Thanks so much.